So let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 12. And I have to say to you this morning that I really wrestled with what I was supposed to preach this week. I have weeks where I know well in advance, no doubt, come right into the pulpit. Last week was one of those. And this week, just struggled all week. And uh, it, it actually increases your sermon preparation time because you get working on something and get it all nailed down. And then it's like God taps you on the shoulder and says, wrong message. <laughs> okay, so which one is it? And on, uh, on a Friday, Friday afternoon, the Lord gave me this. And then yesterday, I begin to doubt, I begin to look at something else. And this is very diverse. This is very diverse. Uh, we're going to do a message this morning on the casting down of Satan. And we're going to spend some time in the heavenlies, if you will, in heavenly places. But the emphasis is going to be on the boots on the ground because we have the daily spiritual warfare. And God actually gives us a formula for getting the devil off of our back. And I'll give you that in the message. It's right here in the text. But the other message that I was really wrestling with, even right up till this morning, my wife will tell you, is you may remember not too long ago I preached a message on dealing with a critical spirit. We all have the tendency to develop a critical spirit, and we talked about how to deal with that scripturally. Well, the addendum to that, the sequel to that, is how to deal with criticism when we're on the other end of it, when we're receiving criticism. And so, two very different things. So, talking about the fall of, or the casting down of Satan, and you're in heavenly places, and then you're talking about dealing with criticism, which frankly is a message that probably an unsaved person could get something from. So, this is where we landed. We'll go to that other place here in probably the next week or two. But we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to talk about the casting down of Satan. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Now that statement alone is an amazing statement. I've never fought in war. I'm not going to pretend I understand it. I'm not going to pretend I know what it's like to be shot at and have my life on the line in that way or shoot and take someone else's life. I've read a lot. I've talked to a lot of men that have fought. And so I can have an appreciation as much as I believe I can from the outside looking in. And, and, and what I know of war is incredible. It's terrible. It's terrifying. And an overworked word, it's awesome. But this is war in heaven. Imagine this, just that one statement, and there was war in heaven. Imagine what war in heaven must have been like. And, and, and the Bible says Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Think about this one. In the Old Testament, one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrians. In one night, one angel Folks, this, this was war unlike anything we've ever seen on the earth, or ever will. 
Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place. Notice that's not T-H, T-H-E-R-E, not like as in there was a place anymore. No, neither was there as in their place that they had was now lost. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Cast out. Cast out. Monumental. I don't know if you ever thought about it. Probably haven't. But as a preacher, I've had this thought. God had a church split. He did. He lost a third of his congregation. One third of the angels defected with Satan. Now you say, how is that even possible? They're in heaven. They're with God. What was wrong with God that one third of the angels had to rebel? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? And so a third go with him. And the Bible says in verse 9, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, I'm not going to try to even take the time to go through all the chronologies of these things. I want you to just think about something. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, seemingly out of nowhere, although the context was miracles and the casting out of devils, so there was context there, but he made an amazing statement. He said in Luke 10, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. What's Jesus referring to there? Very possible this event right here, which I believe took place shortly after Isaiah chapter 14 when he declared he was going to rebel against God. And the Bible says he was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. In verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I, I believe that's connected with Isaiah chapter 14, right after his rebellion. But this right here, is, is during the tribulation period. And we see the casting down of Satan. The casting down of state, Satan is by degrees. And again, for the sake of time, we can't go through all the steps. This is not the last of it right here. The Bible tells us later on that he's going to be cast into a bottomless pit. And he will be there for how long? 1,000 years. Boy, if he's claustrophobic, he's got problems. 
And then he'll, he'll come out again and he'll lead another rebellion. And he'll be cast down again until finally he ends up in the lake of fire. And I don't know about you, but I hate the devil. And I'm glad that's going to happen someday. I'm, I'm glad that God's going to take care of that. Um, John Milton wrote uh, of this portion of scripture, I believe, in Paradise Lost. He says, Michael bids sound the archangel trumpet through the vast of heaven. It sounded in the faithful armies rung, Hosanna to the highest. Nor stood at gaze the adverse legions, nor less hideous joined the horrid shock. Now storming fury rose in clamor such as heard in heaven till now. Was never arms on armor clashing braid, horrible discord in the maddening wheels of brazen chariots rage. Dire was the noise of conflict. Overheard the dismal hiss of fiery darts and flaming volleys flew and flying vaulted their host with fire. So under fiery cope together rushed both battles main and ruinous assault with inextinguishable rage. Finally, he describes the expulsion of Satan. Him, the Almighty hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down. What a sight. What a sight. You know, I believe we're going to get to see replays of a lot of things that happened in the Word of God when we get to heaven. And you read in the Word of God, you get to the book of Job, you realize even to this day Satan has access right up to the threshold of heaven because he confronts and challenges God, but someday he's going to be cast out of that position and then later, he's going to be bound in the bottomless pit as we already looked at. This is a seven-headed dragon. The devil has come down to you having great wrath. This python, this dragon, has seven satanic heads. Heads full of plentitude and duplicity and iniquity and wickedness. And as though the seven heads of satanic ingenuity for sin were not enough... Each head has a diadem, power, authority, and display. He loves it. Whenever you see the world out there and its ostentatiousness, that's a reflection of the spirit of Satan. He loves the display of his seven diadems, his ten horns, his ableness, his might, his authority. And that's part of the mystery of God. The permissive will of God that allows Satan to rule over God's destroyed universe for a short time. Jesus said he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, he encompasses the fall of the human race. He presides over the murder of righteous Abel. In the book of Job, in the permissive will of God, he moved that the Lord allowed Job to be bereft of his children and to fall into mis misery and despair. That's Satan. In the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew, he sought to destroy the Son of God himself through three terrible temptations. In the book of Matthew, the Lord speaks of sowing the word. And what happens? A man hears the word of God. He's moved to believe in Christ. <coughs> 
And then the wicked one takes the word out of his heart and thrusts him back into the mesh and the mechanics of this life again, only to forget those things that he heard and to lose those seeds that were sown. In the book of Luke, we're told about a woman who was bowed down 18 years by Satan. In the book of Acts, it is said he was anointed, Christ was anointed, and went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Every time tears fall, every time hearts are broken, every time lives are smashed, every time visions are destroyed, that's Satan. That's the work of Satan. Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Satan put it into the heart of Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Ghost. Peter says that the devil, like a roaring lion, seeks whom he may devour. That's this Satan. And one of these days, he's going down. He's going down. We see it in the spirit of our age. We see the fear. We see the bunker mentality. But we also see individuals. Self-flagellation, self-condemnation, self-loathing. Self-righteously condemning and accusing. And the world joining in and teaming up with the flesh in an attempt to do one thing, make the life of the believer miserable. You see, folks, when you got saved, the devil can't have you anymore. He, he can't think in terms of taking you to hell. But what he wants to do is ruin your testimony. And if he can't tempt you into sin and wickedness, he'll try to condemn and accuse you into self-loathing. I've got a message I preach once in a while. Some of you may remember it. It's called, Have You Forgiven Yourself? 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever got down on your knees and confessed your sins to the Lord and claimed 1 John 1, 9 and got up and heard a little voice that said, you're not forgiven. Who are you kidding? I believe sometimes that might be conscience gone awry. That might be ourselves. But more often than not, I believe it's one of those fiery darts. Ephesians chapter 6, because the devil wants to keep you down. You've got to claim the promises of the Word of God. Uh, in the 1500s, Martin Luther uh, exclaimed that this spiritual warfare was sometimes so, so extreme in his life that he would, he would quote Scripture to the devil. He'd say, hey, Satan, haven't you ever heard this one? One time the devil was condemning him about his sins and he said, Okay, Saint Satan, I guess you don't have any sins, do you? <laughs> you see, that's a little extreme, but the bottom line, folks, is the devil works in that realm. 
he, he works, you know, a lot of times people think what well, the devil's going to tempt you to do something, it'll be to, it'll be to, to, to drink or to smoke marijuana or, or do something like that. Uh, folks, the flesh, the flesh can handle that. He works as much or more in, in the realm of conscience, in the realm of guilt, in the realm of denying the promises of God in the realm of accusing man to God and God to man and man to man and man to himself. Paul said we're not ignorant of his devices. He's called the God of this world. He is a usurper judge and court is always in session. He accused God to man in Genesis chapter 3. He accused man to God in Job chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he'll, he'll accuse man to man. He'll accuse believer to believer. You've been just going along and all of a sudden thought pops into your head, brother so-and-so doesn't like you. You haven't talked to brother so-and-so in a month. Last time you talked to brother so-and-so, everything was fine. Now all of a sudden brother so-and-so doesn't like you. So the next time you're in church, from way across the auditorium, you see brother so-and-so, and he turned his head and looked right past you, and now you're sure he's ignoring you. Or he might have had a grimace on his face, but you didn't take into consideration his right shoe is not fitting very well today, and it hurts. He'll accuse man to man. He'll accuse brother to brother. He'll accuse, he'll accuse you to yourself. He loves the realm of self-righteousness. He loves that realm. H.A. Ironside, Harry Ironside, wrote a book that's long out of print, but I was able to get a, uh, my hands on it. It's called, the, na- the name of the book is called Holiness, the False and the True. You say, preacher, is there a false holiness? Yeah. And the devil likes to use it. Ironside got involved in a movement shortly after he was saved he eventually recovered from it, but whereby they believed that their, their, their old nature was eradicated and they became sinlessly perfect. And in one of the chapters, he talks about all of the havoc that that wreaked in his life. And in one particular, in particular paragraph, he says, before I had always held up Christ and pointed the loss to him. Now, almost imperceptibly, My own experience became my theme, and I held up myself as a striking example of consecration and holiness. He said, this was a prevailing characteristic of the brief addresses made by most of the quote-unquote advanced Christians in our company. The youngest in grace magnified Christ. The sanctified, quote-unquote, magnified themselves. A favorite song will make this more manifest than any words of mine. It is still widely used in some of the meetings and finds a place in their song or hymn books. I give only one verse as a specimen. Quote, some people I know don't live holy. They battle with unconquered sin, not daring to consecrate fully. Or they, full salvation would win. With malice, they have constant trouble. From doubting, they long to be free. With most things about them, they grumble. 
Praise God, this is not so with me. I would say if I found that in our hymnal, we would take it out. <laughs> he goes on to say, will the reader believe me when I say that I sang this wretched doggerel without a thought of the sinful pride to which I was giving expression? I considered it my duty to continually direct attention to my experience of full salvation as it was called. What am I saying? I'm saying the devil will work in the realm of religion. He will work in the realm of conscience. He will distort and pervert that which God has made plain and simple. And so Paul tells us not to let the devil complicate that which God has made simple. The simplicity, the Bible says, that is in Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. And I want us to consecrate there, uh, concentrate, concentrate there for a few minutes. He said, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And by the way, it's enough that we have the righteousness of Christ. And, and we don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. And in verse, verse 11, he says, now here's the important part. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. A threefold victory. We're told in James chapter 4, verse 7, to submit ourselves unto God and resist the devil. But how do we do that? God has literally given us a formula here in verse 11. This is how the saints were victorious. And this is how we can be victorious in our daily lives as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, as we seek to walk with him. Are we any match for the devil in our own power? Absolutely not. But look at these three things that God gives us. Number one, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. By the blood of the lamb. Not by our own goodness, not by our own works, not by our own wisdom, not by any cleverness of our own, but by the blood of the Lamb. We plead the blood of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We plead the blood of Jesus Christ. What, what are we saying when we say that? Number one, we're saying that's the basis of our being able to have Righteousness in the sight of God is that blood. That blood also means that Christ is our mediator, our high priest. And the Bible says, For he hath made us to be made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are pleading the blood is the grounds that we can stand before God in any favor whatsoever. 
And by the way, it's the grounds whereby we can have spiritual warfare and defeat Satan. The blood. It was their cleansing. And folks, it's our cleansing this morning. I don't recommend anybody sin. But when it happens, you plead the blood of Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. On what basis? The blood of Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, I sinned this morning and I confess that sin, so I have to walk around all hunched over the rest of the day. No, you don't. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. You need to claim the promise. How about this one? I'm tempted to sin today. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, not, uh, uh, who will not, what's the next word? Suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation make a way to what? Escape that you may be able to bear it. What's the basis of that escape? <coughs> is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's Paul saying in, in, in uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I can't tell you how many times, just in the last week or two, when a temptation was starting to work its way into my mind, and I was starting to take the bait, and I just stepped back for a second, and I quoted that verse, and God made me understand right there, that temptation is not me. And the temptation lost its grip. All on the basis of what? The blood. The blood, folks. Why do you think the devil's trying to take the blood out of all these new Bibles? Colossians chapter 114, <clears throat> in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You pick up the new Bibles, the, the new translations, and they leave uh, through his blood out of that verse. Why is that? It's not only the basis of our relationship with God and the enmity being removed, it is the basis by which, look at verse 11 again, we overcome who? Him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. He hates that blood. He hates that blood. <coughs> their cleansing was by the blood. Their confession was their testimony. And by the word of their testimony, and by the word of their testimony, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will never, no, never desert to its foes. Our testimony. Can I say to you this morning, don't keep your testimony to yourself. Give your testimony give it. You know what? It not only has an effect on those around you that hear it, it has an effect on you when you give it. Giving your testimony confirms your testimony. The book of Proverbs is replete with the idea that, that our words have a backflow. They not only affect those to whom it goes out to, but our words come back to us and affect us as well. 
And the Bible says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, point one, and by the word of their testimony. I can't explain it this morning. I can't. But when you witness for Jesus Christ, when you give your testimony, it rearranges and straightens out so many things in our lives. It's almost automatic in a sense. I believe part of it is because, honestly, folks, if, if God didn't leave us here after we were saved to be a witness to others, I'm not sure why he left us here. You say, well, it's to glorify him. I don't know a better way to glorify him than tell lost people about the salvation that he wrought. There's something about giving that testimony. There's something about standing by that testimony. But let me give you one more thing that I believe is underappreciated. Unless you're a good student of the Bible, that, that testimony includes what God says about you in Jesus Christ. Folks, the truest thing about you is what God says about you. If you've been saved any length of time, you've needed that. You've needed to lean on that. For instance, in Matthew 5, we're told that we're the salt of the earth. In Matthew 5, we're also told we're the light of the world. In John 1, we're told that we're sons of God. In John 15, we're friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that can do for you in a moment of temptation? That can come to your mind and you'd say, a friend of Jesus Christ wouldn't do that. We're told in John 15 also that we're chosen and ordained by Christ to bear fruit. We're told in John 16 that we're loved to the Father as much as the Father loves the Lord Jesus. Imagine that one. You're having a day where you feel lonely. You're having a day where you feel like nobody understands you. And it comes to your mind by way of God's testimony about you that you're loved by the Father as much as the Father loves the Son. How's that for being loved? The Bible tells us in Romans 6 that we're servants of righteousness, servants of God. We're told in Romans 8 that we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We're told in Romans 8 that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. They'll say, well, I can't get over that hurdle. I can't get past that temptation. God says you are a conqueror. Believe what God said about you. Not what the flesh says about you. Not what the world says about you. Not what the devil will sit on your shoulder and whisper into your ear about you. Believe what God said. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3 that we're God's husbandry, we're God's building, we're God's temple. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6 that we're joined unto the Lord and we're one spirit with him. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that we're a member of Christ's body. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're new creatures in Christ. All things are passed away. All things are become new. Sometimes Christians excuse their sin with, well, that's just the way I am. That's just the way I grew up. Well, guess what? That's the old man. That's the old life. You're a new creature now. And you can bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. 
I'm going to tell you what, when the Spirit of God gets control of you and you start bearing those nine fruit, all that old junk, all those old habits, all those tendencies that are impossible to overcome in the power of the flesh just, just fall off and fade away. And it's Christ in you, the hope of glory that people see. That's the word of your testimony, folks. We're, we're ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, all the do's and the don'ts and the rights and the wrongs and what do I wear? Uh, what do I look like? What do I smell? What do I eat? What, where do I go? Who do I hang with? Who do I don't hang with? It's all taken care of and I'm an ambassador for Christ. What would an ambassador for Christ do? That's the only question you have to answer. Galatians 3, we're heirs of God and sons of God. We're saints. Ephesians chapter 1, I, I was amazed at that right after I got saved because I got saved out of Catholicism. And I went home and some of my early witnessing efforts to my Catholic family when I was the only one saved were a little bit crude. I have to admit my mom asked me one time, she said, what are you going to give up for Lent, Rick? I said, I'm going to give up the Catholic Church. <laughs> Needless to say, that didn't go over real well. And I remember one time I came home and I declared to all my Catholic family, I am St. Rick. <laughs> a couple of them had a cow. I mean, they just... This kid's going off the deep end, man. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 that we're accepted in the beloved. Maybe you had a bad family life. Maybe you had one of those mothers or fathers that said, we wish we would have never had you. By the way, never say that to your kids. Maybe you had a third grade teacher that said you were stupid or Whatever. Bible tells you that you're now, you're accepted in the beloved. Who cares about all that other stuff? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares if anybody else even knows my name? I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm alive in Christ, according to Ephesians 2. No longer dead in trespasses and sins. And on and on and on we can go. We, I've been made to me a partaker, the inheritance of the saints in light, Colossians chapter 1. The Bible tells me in Colossians 3, I'm, I'm dead and my life is hid with Christ in God. And on and on and on we could go. Folks, the truest thing about you is what God says about you. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, number one, and by the word of their testimony, number three, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Martyrdom. How do we know? How do we know what we would do in a situation like this? And any Christian has thought about this at one time or another. I remember the first time I read Fox's Book of Martyrs through, and I, I would say to any Christian that's been saved at least five years, you need to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's one of the classics of the Christian faith. And I remember thinking to myself many times as I read about those martyrs, would I have been faithful? Would I have denied Christ? What would I have done? Folks, we may not get that opportunity, but one thing we can do is we can live for him. We can live for him. And what's the worst thing the world can do? What's the worst thing the world's ever threatened us to do? 
What's the worst thing that Satan's ever threatened to do to us? Kill us and send us to heaven. Wow, you could do worse. You say, I don't know if I'd give my life for Christ. Well, here's one thing we can do. We can live for him. We can live for him. A mighty fortress is our God. Uh, a lot of people don't know it, but Martin Luther wrote this in the 1500s during a real downtime in his life. The Protestant Reformation was floundering. There was sickness in his family. The plague is going through Europe. There were many disputes among the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. Luther seemed to be the lightning rod of many of them. And yet God inspired him to, to, to pen this song and I often think of the third verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly power, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. By the way, <laughs> some of you have had experiences where... <laughs> You almost died, and some of you thought you were going to die. I always, you know, I take most things pretty good. I mean, I've had 16 bone marrow biopsies. But I don't like throwing up. My wife will tell you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really good about a lot of things, needles, I've been made a pin cushion out of and all that. But throwing up, I don't know what it is, but every time I throw up, I'm sure I'm going to die. And there's something about it where I want everybody in the house to know I'm dying. I mean, if I'm going to die throwing up, I am not going to die alone. And she'll tell you, I make some of the most ungodly noises. And they're loud. But if you've ever really stare down the gun barrel of death, you realize one thing. As a believer, now as a lost person, all bets are off on this one. Forget it. Forget that guy that's lost and says, I'm not afraid of death. He hasn't faced it yet. He hasn't been in the foxhole. He hasn't had a doctor tell him that he may not make it. Forget it. But if you're saved, can I let you in on a little secret? There's a point at which it's kind of liberating. Kind of liberating. I remember one day I was driving around, traffic, someone road raged me. I don't know, head indigestion, I don't know, just a number of things. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to put up with this much longer. And then a couple days later, the doctor said everything was straightening out. Oh, <laughs> Folks! Death isn't the end. Death is the portal to the beginning. 
And so they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimonies, and they loved not their lives unto the death. I'm not saying go run around, look for a chance to be a martyr, but let me tell you what, folks, if you're not afraid of death, then there's nothing to be afraid of. And you don't ever have to live in the torment of fear. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear. We heard that verse in Sunday school this morning. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And John tells us in one of his epistles that fear hath torment. And we don't have to live in that fear, folks. So let me say this to you this morning. Some of you are aware of it, and some of you may not be. But whether you are or not, we're living in a day and age where spiritual warfare is ramping up. Okay? The more our society, the more our country, the more that rotten liberal religion and, and everything else gives way and opens doors into darkness through various means of rejecting the Bible and selling out to paganism, we're just going to see a ramping up of spiritual warfare, and it's going to affect us. And God has given us a wonderful formula. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Are you saved here this morning? Then you're a child of the king. And your testimony, according to the word of God, is that you're more than a conqueror through him that loved you. Now, you may not be getting victory over sin, but that doesn't mean you can't, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't. It's available to you. Victory is yours. Not through you or any ability of your own, but through him. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And lastly, and they love not their lives unto the death. You know, God, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, put the world in our hearts. He, he, he gave us a love for life. It's unnatural, all this, this goth nonsense and, and acting like you love death and sleeping in caskets and all this, this, this baloney. That's an unnatural thing. God God, God put a love for life in us. But folks, when our time comes, I guarantee you, every loved one in Christ that you know that went home to be with the Lord, as much as we miss them, uh, Sister Weston, where are you? Where are you? Connie, where are you at? Okay. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I just did, didn't I? I was just thinking about Rick the other day. I'm sorry, I'd probably make you cry. But uh, you know something? As much as she misses him, and boy, I tell you, this preacher misses him. I got a lot of good ameners in this church, but there was none like Rick. And you want to know something? As much as we all miss him, he wouldn't come back for anything. He's with his Savior right now. And everybody you know that's gone home to be with the Lord feels the same way. And folks, that's where this whole thing's going to end up. Yeah, you're going to have problems this week. Yeah, you're going to have battles, guaranteed. Amen? But one of these days, we're going to fight the last battle. And so in the meantime, overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of your testimony. And don't love your life. 
don't love your life so much that you're unwilling to take any risks or you say to yourself, man, the thought of death, worst thing. No, no, no. By the way, absent the rapture, we all got to go out feet first, right? Absent the rapture. Now, I'm with you there. If you're for the rapture, I'm for it too. My wife and I are all for it. We want to go together at the rapture. But absent that, folks, they love not their lives unto the death. And folks, anybody that's gone home, they don't want to come back. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, we thank you for the downward fall of Satan, your enemy, our enemy. And Lord, we thank you that someday he'll be put in a place where we won't have to have any more dealings with him again. We look forward to that. Until that time, Father, help us to avail ourselves of that which you've given us for victory. And Lord, we pray for that one without Christ today, that this might be the day of days for them because without you, Lord, they could never win against Satan. And they could never be free of their sins. Bless this message to our hearts. I don't know why you had me preach it. I wrestled with it all week. But minister to our hearts concerning these great truths. And just take something from this, Lord, and strengthen us in spiritual warfare. Father, we see it ramping up all around us in obvious ways and in more subtle ways. But you said, Lord, that we're more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him that loved us. And for that, we're grateful this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and take our hymnals and turn to number 172. 172, a mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our
right. Brother Mark Garrison, come on up. Would you close us in a word of prayer? All right. That was good this morning, wasn't it? Amen. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we are uh, thankful for you this morning. We're thankful for your word and the strength that we can find in it. We're thankful for your spirit that ministers it to us. And um, we're thankful, God, to be able to be part of the battle, the spiritual war that's raging on right now, even for the souls of lost men and women. God, we pray for those that are struggling right now, those that are discouraged, those that are thinking they can't do it any longer. God, that you'd give them the strength that they need, remind them of all the blessings they have, and help them to go forward. And those that are active and moving and God just doing great in the spiritual war, we pray that you'd give them the grace they need to continue. Father, help us to be faithful soldiers uh, and give us mercy and grace in our time of need. Please help all of us in this church to be a great force in your hands. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.